Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Precision Medicine. Today we're doing something that we haven't done before in this podcast, and that's having a previous guest back for an update. Last October, we ran a conversation with my colleague, David Middleman, who's the founder and CEO of Othram, which is a forensic genetics company based out of Houston, Texas. Uh, David is pioneering the use of whole genome sequencing to solve cold cases and to deliver justice or comfort uh, to the families of victims. They've been in the news a lot. Uh, at the end of 2019, they were featured in solving quite an old cold case, possibly the oldest cold case ever solved with forensic DNA. And uh, David's also been in the news recently discussing current trends we see in consumer DNA testing. This is sort of 23andMe and Ancestry kind of genealogy-driven platforms, which is something he knows a lot about. So we felt it was time just to, to get David back on the phone and talk to him about what's going on at Othram and to give him an opportunity to describe their, their new database, their product called DNA Solves. That's dnasolves.com. Anyway, I'm going to let you hear it from David, not from me, uh, but I'm super excited to have episode two of, of what it's essentially talking precision medicine's cold case files. Thanks very much and uh, enjoy the show. So David, tell me a bit about DNA Solves. This looks like it's a, a new product that Authorm has launched. Yeah, so we launched uh, DNA Solves at the end of uh, 2019 and it's a, a database very similar to uh, GEDmatch, to other genealogical databases. But this database is not for genealogy or for medical research, or really for anything other than helping law enforcement. So it's an opportunity to contribute your profiles and information from other testing companies that you might have tested at, whether 23andMe or Ancestry or you know, multitude of other testing companies. And what it allows you to do is to take those, uh, those files, put them into a database, Again, the only uses for law enforcement is not, uh, it's not publicly available to individuals, but law enforcement can use it to match against a case that they're running if they're trying to solve a human ID you know, problem for a, you know, unidentified remains or, or an active criminal investigation. That's cool. And so who are the consumers of the database then? So this is a database that crime fighters or, or um, law enforcement would, in, would directly use, or would they engage Othram to kind of help navigate the database? So we don't have a public-facing search, and I think that's actually a, an advantage. There's been a lot of unrest about uh, the, the risks and liabilities and allowing public search. There's folks that have particularly uh, you know, demonstrated what's possible if you um, do public search at GEDmatch and then scrape the information and, and you know, perhaps upload profiles that are not, uh, not genuine and use that to somehow scrape information about other folks that are in the database. So that's all, that's all a lot of complexity that we didn't want to deal with. And so the, one of the key features of DNA Solves is that when you put information in, um, you, cannot, you cannot get back any information other than information about your, uh, particularly, your particular data. And so, so there is no public search. So if law enforcement were to come to DNA Solves, they'd be able to submit data for a case that they're working on. Then, you know, we'd, we'd want to validate their credentials and we would then return back to them uh, results. So there's not a, there's gotcha. not like a self-service mm -hmm. public searching kind of mechanism to it. Well, no, that makes sense. After all, this isn't, as you said, this is not for genealogy. This is a serious business. I, I also don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to trick anyone. So there's, there's two models that you're probably aware with for consent. 
one model is uh, opt-in. That's what that's what GEDmatch uses. And you can elect, you're by default not included, but you can elect to opt-in and allow law enforcement to use your data. The other model is opt-out, and that's what Family Tree DNA uses for their database. And so there, you're automatically included in search unless you specifically and actively opt out of being searched. I think both those models are fine, but the, the DNA solves models a little different. We don't do anything but this one thing. So you, you can't even match against relatives. We don't return you know, information. So there's no, it's, it's a more streamlined and, and easier way to consent someone because you don't have to risk that they're coming for one purpose and they're confused and you've, you've kind of incentivized right. them to do one thing, but you're going to use the data differently. Like the only thing you can do on our site is contribute data to help solve a crime. So it's a mm -hmm. straightforward consent, but it's also a more secure way to do things since you can't access anyone's data but your own. Let's um, lift the, the hood a bit and look underneath. So a database is only going to be as useful as the metadata. Tell me a bit about how you're curating the, the genetic data that goes into this database. So there's, there's two pieces to metadata. There's, um, there's the data that the people are contributing inward, and that's, that's going to be the genetic information. And that information um, we run through, through a pipeline that we have that'll essentially record all the observed positions. And we, we accept a lot more than just array data. So we'll do array data. We also accept sequencing data. A growing number of customers have tested at companies that offer full genome sequence. So it's actually an interesting data problem to integrate variant calls from sure. sources to, to normalize and standardize that so they can be compared against each other. And then, of course, to, uh, to, to understand you know, how to, how to match. The matching algorithm is going to be very different here because you can't make the assumption like you do at a testing company that all the markers are always there for all the samples that, you, that you're matching against. So there's definitely an element of standardization, post-processing on that data so you could have apples to apples comparisons. The, the other thing that we do on the metadata though, people are voluntarily allowed to, um, to submit, you know, their name and their parents' name, for example, mm -hmm. and date of birth for, for all those folks. And what that does is it creates a little bit of an anchor point if that was to be used in, in an investigation to to identify someone it's easier to kind of place that data point on a tree interesting yeah so ju just to kind of say that back to the audience what's so fascinating about this is dna solves is running into a lot of the same kinds of challenges you'd see using genomics in the clinical setting which is there are different platforms so you have to harmonize across you know data generation platforms and then Beyond that, you need to have some sort of robust way of making sure the variant calls are, are reliable. Um, I'd be curious to see if you ever get something like, this would be neat to have like families come in and actually submit, say, TRIO data. I don't, you know, that's something you see in rare disease. I wonder if you'd ever get kind of a family of wannabe crime helpers or, you know, crime solving helpers uh, where you could really get sort of her heredity patterns. I agree. I think that would be, um, I think that'd be clever. Um, I will tell you what we have had is we've had folks that are, you know, hobbyist genealogists that have sent us you know, information. And many of them are pretty excited about what we're doing. What they've done is they've sent us information along with uh, known relationships. So mm -hmm. not necessarily a trio, but, but kind of like what you're saying, yeah. you know, established pedigree mm -hmm. and then with lots of data points. And that's, that's been really valuable as well because we, we can use that sort of data to kind of train how we compare um, samples. And, and interestingly enough, a lot of these folks have data points from many different sources. So maybe one person in the family tested at 23andMe, another one got a full genome sequence from somewhere. So yeah, it's definitely an interesting puzzle. And, I, and it does mirror the clinical space in that, you know, if you're doing clinical variant uh, interpretation, for example, you want to make sure you standardize how those variant calls are made. It, it reminds me of the problem, obviously, on a much larger scale that um, 
that Nomad has over at Broad, right, where they're curating a giant variant database, and they probably have a lot of heterogeneity in, um, in, in the data that's coming in. No, that, that's, you know, that's undoubtedly a challenge. But, you know, for those who aren't familiar with David's background, I do encourage you to listen to the, the previous longer interview. Um, he was on the ground floor of a lot of the, the sort of adoption of, of whole exome, whole genome, um, and moving that towards the clinic after the Human Genome Project. So I'm confident that you and your team are going to be able to crack this. But the platform issue is challenging. The other, the other problem that you mentioned is kind of the sparsity of data, right? So you'll have variants in some and, in, and from other samples, you know, you'll just have kind of empty space in the matrix. Are you working on any kind of tech specifically to deal with that? Or are you adopting solutions from the clinical space? Well, I mean, the nice thing about Ancestry, you know, in, in the clinical space, you really need to observe the variant that you're particularly interested in because there's going to be a clinical relationship with that one variant. In the Ancestry space, you have a little more leeway. So it's, hmm. it's less important if you've accessed direct observation of any one specific marker. And more important that you've kind of, to some extent, uniformly covered the genome with markers in general so that you can kind of infer whether or not the two sequences are similar or not similar. And from there, kind of derive an idea of how related two people are. So you still need to have overlap because it makes it really hard to estimate difference if wherever there's one call and on the other place there's no data, that's, that's kind of hard to, to match up and sensitively detect a relationship. But, but you have a little more flexibility because you're not looking for any one specific marker. No, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about that, but a very good point. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, DNA solves in the news. So there was a, a story, I guess, just at the, the end of last year and then early this year um, around a, an infamous case that, that was identified. Tell, tell us a bit more about your foray into the uh, Buffalo Cave. So that's, that's an interesting case. Um, so this, uh, this Idaho cave was home to some remains, uh, a torso, no head or, or limbs, um, that was found in 1979. And, and so uh, it's an interesting story because uh, they later, I think, in the 90s found uh, some of the limbs. But basically, the, the, the body has remained unidentified for 40 years. And the DNA Doe Project raised money to, to basically identify this individual. And so uh, we, we were the lab that uh, basically took the material and, and produced a, a genome sequence from it. And uh, I guess the twist to the story is that we produced a genome sequence and then these two genealogists, um, Anthony and Lee Redgrave, which, uh, which lead our genealogy team now at Othram, they, they were working with the, the DNA Doe um, genealogy group. There's a huge network of volunteers that, that work super hard to, uh, to kind of crack these cases. And, and they discover, interestingly enough, that although the remains were found in 1979, the, the body belonged to, uh, to someone that you know, is over 100 years old. So a bootlegger that um, was himself a criminal and had escaped jail. And, um, and it appears that same year uh, eventually succumbed to a, the fate that, you know, that people know about. He got chopped up and thrown in a cave. And, um, and it looks like that happened 100 years ago. So it took a little bit of a twist, but exciting. So, so yeah, we, we produced the um, genomic sequence from there. And um, the ability to identify these folks, um, whether it's this person in the cave or any of these other cases that we've worked, is, is contingent on data. So we, so we need data. And I believe there was a, uh, a substantial Mormon tree component to his identification. And that's a value. I mean, there are, there are other scenarios, folks from other areas where there is not as good uh, records on the tree and not as much data points to compare against. And it, it creates a substantial challenge. And that's, that's actually, um, I don't know if you're heading in this direction, but that's actually another reason that we put together DNA solves. Here's an interesting fact. 
the entirety of Jedmatch, I'm not talking about uh, the, the consented portion, the entirety of Jedmatch represents less than 5% of people that have taken a test with one of these consumer genetics companies. So that's, that's worth thinking about because over 95% of the people that get a genetic test, they've never, they probably never even heard of Jedmatch and they probably don't use it. Jedmatch is a really important tool, but it's, um, it's a power user tool. It's something you use when you're in the advanced stage of building out a tree. You want to make sure you can match it to every possible relative. You've exhausted the database that you're at, whether it's 23 and your ancestry, and you go to Jedmatch so you can meet folks from other databases because the databases don't talk to each other. So that's an important thing because when you opt in people to Jedmatch, and you know less than 1% of people have actually opted in, out of all the people that have ever tested. And um, when you go to GenMatch, you've already narrowed down to the power users of genealogy. And then you're asking some subset of them, are you interested in helping solve a crime? Our approach with DNA Solves is not to be a genealogy database, is to basically be a resource where folks can contribute. And so we're really you know, appealing to the broader market. We're appealing to the 35 million or more folks that have tested worldwide now. And we're, we're asking if any of them, whether they care about genealogy or not, have an interest in identifying, you know, remains like this guy in the cave or victims or perpetrators of crimes. And so, um, so that's, that I think kind of enlarges our search space for participants. But, um, but I think it's really important. I mean, the, the genealogy is a critical step and, uh, and you can't say enough about the hard work that uh, a lot of these genealogists who are volunteering, particularly with DNA Doe, to, to do the, the tree building. But for them to do that, they need two things. They need good quality data that's what the Authorum Lab specializes in, digitizing remains, no matter how terrible or old they are. And you need good quality, you know, matching reference sets, and that requires representation from everyone. That's kind of another kind of objective of DNA Solves is to, yeah. is to market to the broader audience. That's fascinating. And I hadn't pieced together, but of course, Idaho has a, a substantial Mormon population. And, and for those who aren't steeped in genealogy, the you know, the Mormon community and the Church of Latter-day Saints has done an exhaustive job of putting together its own genealogy. Uh, I know, you know, people will go to Salt Lake, for example, just to steep themselves in the genealogy archives there. That's cool. Uh, you know, I'm reading a book right now. Um, it's an older book called Linked by uh, Barabasi, who's sort of the one of the fathers of modern network theory. And he, he's active today in Boston, has a diagnostics company in addition to his lab. And so I've been thinking a lot about, and he features the sort of six degrees of separation, six degrees of Kevin Bacon uh, stuff. But I wonder how many links apart do you think people are going to be in sort of this this DNA genealogy world? In other words, what kind of sampling of the population uh, would you actually strive for to, to be able to connect people to, you know, sort of distant other people? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, right now there are kind of the first and second cousin area is very like, um, the outlook is really good. When you, when you have a first or second cousin, there's a good chance that genealogists will be able to wrap that up pretty quick. Yeah, now, there's always, there's always exceptions, right? Non-paternal events and, and you know, mistakes and records that can throw even the simplest case into a loop of mystery and investigation. But generally, a first or second cousin is really great. You know, if you have a fifth or a sixth cousin, it's, it's extremely challenging because you're working up a tree very many generations back and then trying to come to the present and figure out who someone is. I think the sweet spot's going to be like around, you know, that, that inflection point's around like third or fourth cousin. And so I think the goal is like if, 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 if most folks can be connected to a third or fourth cousin, then I think you have a tangible way, you know, a good attempt 
can be made to, to make an ID. And so um, prior to uh, GEDmatch switching to this model of opt-in, they had you know just over a million profiles. I think it was 1.2 at the time, million profiles. And folks were making a lot of IDs. Now, again, there's a certain bias for who's in GEDmatch. But um, given that, you know, they were making decent IDs. So mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know the exact math. I haven't thought about exactly how many you would need. That gives you a data point, you know. The, the biggest challenge with genealogy is that genealogy isn't, at least this early wave of genealogists were not um, universally representative of all, all populations. It's a very predominant North American, sorry, Northern European um, ancestry bias. I suspect that's true too, though, if you look at people who do consumer DNA kits. Well, that's where the bias comes from. So the original value proposition for this consumer testing was ancestry. So folks had spent years um, using traditional genealogical methods to establish trees, and they were looking for genetics to confirm and rule in or out folks on their tree. And that began with mitochondrial DNA testing and Y testing. And then uh, 23andMe pioneered the idea of using these arrays that assessed you know, hundreds of thousands of autosomal markers. So all of that was originally in pursuit of ancestry. And from there, kind of took a turn towards traits. And now, as you can see, all the companies are pivoting towards uh, you know, clinically relevant, right. medically important markers. But the, the original audience was, was ancestry. And so it just is what it is. Like that, that appeals to some groups more than to others. But the one cool thing is that, you know, I, I think medicine is, uh, is kind of, <laughs> medicine appeals to everybody. And, and frankly, I think so does, so does fighting crime. I think that largely everyone is interested in, no, nobody's a big fan of, of violent crime. And I think everyone wants to do something to help yeah. out. Some folks are more apprehensive than others. Some are, are more driven by civic duty than others. But, um, but everyone's, you know, generally interested. And so it may be that some of that bias, you know, shifts as you market, you know, kind of a more broadly appealing topic to folks. No, that's really interesting. You know, the last week or so, and so here we are in kind of the, the middle of February, exactly in the middle of February. The, fir- the first half of February has seen some economics numbers from consumer genomics that suggest that adoption is slowing down. And so, again, for those of you who don't know um, David's bibliography, in addition to being involved in sort of clinical and, and research use around whole genome sequencing, he was also a pioneer in the consumer genetics space, and the consumer DNA space. So you've been interviewed by a bunch of these outlets running these stories. Um, I think they're mostly based around 23andMe's recent layoffs. Do you want to take a couple minutes and just opine on what you think the, the patterns we're seeing in consumer DNA are actually saying? Yeah, it's, it's largely what we've been discussing. So um, 23andMe and Ancestry both laid off, um, you know, around 100 folks each. And I, I don't work at, you know, I don't work for either company. So I'm, I think they were kind of uh, vague on the exact reason of who and why they laid off people at the, at the companies. But I think obviously the, the general consensus is that growth is slowed. The one thing I want to point out is that, you know, people that are investors, you know, playing the markets and all that kind of thing, they're always looking for evidence of a future decline or peak of a product. So it's kind of like when uh, when people are laboring over the fine changes and orders made to the Apple iPhone. Apple sells a lot of iPhones, but they're always looking for that indicator as early as possible that perhaps there isn't infinitely growing interest and, and things are plateauing. Right. And they sound the alarms. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what's happening here. So I want to caveat by saying that what, what's being detected in the market is that the slope of growth is no longer as high. It's, it's kind of decreased a little right. bit. But that does not mean that the era of consumer genomics is, uh, is over or people aren't ordering tests. I mean, mm-hmm. on, on the contrary, the databases continue to grow substantially. 
and and I, I think these companies will continue to see continued growth for some time. So what's happening is a slope of growth is decreasing, which is just adjusting the expectations for how fast it'll grow. Right. And it had the most obvious consequence in Illumina, which mm-hmm. is why they had to in, in their quarterly earnings that you know they're going to push less arrays to the market than they expected. And it, and it makes you know companies like Twenty Three Mean Ancestry, I guess, reevaluate who they need and, and what they're going to do. But um, I will tell you that uh, I think the biggest there's a lot of reasons for why this is happening. I think mm-hmm. the article has done a great job explaining it. But the the biggest signal that I can see here is that um, as we discussed, I mean, the, the early adopters of this market were interested in establishing, you know, confirmation of relationships in family trees. And so genealogy is actually a, a pretty big hobby, but it's not, it's a finite market. It's not huge. It's not what I would call a mainstream endeavor. So what you're, what you're seeing is a saturation of a market, which mm-hmm. again, doesn't mean there isn't plenty of room to grow. It just right. means that number one, you're running out of people that are like, you know, super hyped up about doing this. And number two, because of that, the customer acquisition cost is going to start going up. Mm-hmm. And the other thing to think about is these databases are already pretty large. If you have, let's say, uh, 15 million people in your database, having 16 isn't going to transform your ability to make medical insights to work with pharmaceutical companies, right? Like you, you can derive medical value, you know, probably similar value with 15 million as you would 17 or even 18 million. So you have two things at play. One is the databases are pretty large. You can do good things with them. And number two, the customer acquisition cost is probably beginning to creep up a little bit because you're saturating the early adopters to the market. And so I just don't see that those companies are heavily incentivized Mm -hmm. to grow at all costs. Like they don't need to. So instead, you have this natural saturation of that market. And just like when Apple releases a new phone or or someone, you know, releases a new product, as they begin to pivot and roll out more of these kind of health features, I think what will happen is if they... they roll out things that are valuable and have affinity, then they'll tap a bigger market. And then the same thing happens again. There'll be people that are really excited about this new health product and they'll come in and the customer acquisition costs will get very low. Mm-hmm. And then at some point they'll saturate that market. And then so this is like the natural wave of like how it's like the life cycle of a product. And so um, there's a bunch of other things that have been mentioned as well, but I think, and maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but I think, I think this is the, the primary driver. I think we've seen for a while the growth wasn't going to exponentially right. forever. Are, are you are you interested in are you are you putting any effort into the idea of maybe partnering DNA solves with some of these more established consumer testing uh, companies like that might be a way for them to give those data new life or are the consent modalities fundamentally at odds with each other? So I would love obviously to get as much data as possible, but I think I think that you know our our plan was to consent people up front. I think reconsenting people is challenging. It's not impossible, but it's, it's definitely a challenge. So I like that in our model, people are consented up front. Like this is why you're coming here. The second line on our website says a database for solving crime. Like it's, it's like extremely obvious why you're here. And I like that. And I think you compromise on your ability to be clear if you're reconsenting other data. The other problem is I, I think it's just hard to mix you know, it's hard to mix medicine and, and law enforcement. That, that's where all these privacy issues are going to come up. You know, you're contributing your data to an investigation, but is it going to be sold to an insurance company or is someone going to judge you for it? So um, I can tell you DNA solves. That's why we made a, our policy DNA solves is that we will do nothing with the data except for human ID. So we don't do medical research. Like we, don't, we don't do any of these other things. Right, right. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping by kind of limiting the scope of use that I can, I can make people more comfortable um, we have zero interest. I mean, my company, Othram, we do nothing but human ID. There are other labs that try to do a little bit of everything, a little medicine, a little research, and then maybe sequence some, some remains, test some cases. We have an exclusive human identification focus. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I think that uh, the same is true in the reverse. You know, 23andMe and Ancestry have been very, very clear and very vocal that they don't work with law enforcement. Ancestry right. has, has resisted you know, requests from law enforcement. And, and it's for the same reason. I think they're trying to limit the scope of their use so customers don't feel uncomfortable that if they give their data to Ancestry, they use it everywhere. So I think, I think in principle, mm -hmm. it sounds nice, but um, it makes yeah. it sound complicated. I think it'll hurt the business that 23andMe and Ancestry are trying to build, and it's not really compatible with what we do. So yeah. I, think, I think you just have to kind of wait passively, and, and you let people uh, know that if they've tested and they want to actively take their data and move it somewhere, they can. But it's just, yeah, it would seem really hard. I couldn't even imagine a way that would make sense you know, to co-promote. You put a banner about Authorum on 23andMe's website, and next thing you know it, people are wondering if 23andMe is getting into a different business. <laughs> sure, sure. It doesn't make sense. And 23andMe is, is obviously a large company doing really great things in the medical space. Mm -hmm. like, the risk is not worth it to them. The forensics sure. market is very tiny. Yeah, and as you said, it's probably a different audience. So, so I'm a little curious to the extent that you're comfortable talking about how you do business. Um, how, how does Authorum, how does DNA Solves market itself? Like how do you go find those civic-minded people who want to contribute to this kind of community effort? It's largely been a grassroots effort. There are, there are core, core folks that we've met that are interested and it's kind of spread through word of mouth. Facebook's been a remarkably um, effective channel for communicating. And, um, you know, we try to mention DNA Solves when we solve a story and we let people know some of these, even when we don't, you know, there's some cases we've worked on where we can't solve them. And so, or they don't get solved right away. And I think by illustrating examples in which we do and do not solve a case and, and showing the role that um, the database played in that, I think, mm -hmm. I think that's powerful because it's one thing to talk about, you know, contributing your data and it's another thing to hear a story. That's why I like to highlight, we, we just talked about this, this guy in the cave and there, there are key things that, you know, increase the odds for success. So I think, I think discussing that and the reverse is true. There's very poor, for example, representation of Native American data points. And so you can imagine, you know, trying to identify an unidentified Mormon versus a Native American, like it's a different kind of challenge. And it's, it's because of data that's available. So I think highlighting that so people understand. But yeah, I mean, there hasn't been a, a tremendous, uh, there hasn't been a tremendous mm -hmm. marketing campaign. It's largely been uh, word of mouth, people that are interested. A lot of the folks in true crime are, are just really, really fascinated. And given the option, would love to help kind of join the cause. And again, like we try to highlight it as we discuss work that we perform either ourselves or on behalf of others to work these cases. Is the kind of confidentiality agreements you have to enter into with law enforcement different, the same, more or less complex than if you were doing this in, a, say, a clinical setting for some healthcare application? I guess whichever side you're on, you'll always think it's the harder side. But I think, <laughs> I think there's some, some interesting things on the forensic side that are worth mentioning. There's obviously confidentiality and, and you, know, you need to protect information, but there's also this idea of accountability, right? Chain of custody, Mm -hmm. knowing who's interacted with the information, um, mm -hmm. knowing what information to, to pass on, whether mm -hmm. it's to a genealogist or someone else, ensuring that you do it in a way that is controlled and documented so you can uh, you know, enforce and maintain objectivity, prevent unintentional bias. So that's all things that you would care about in the medical space as well. But there's tremendous scrutiny in forensics around just kind of documentation of who's made contact, even to the extent that you know, in our lab, You'd want to know all the people that have touched the tube of DNA, which we're going to perform a test. That's a level of scrutiny that I think is a little bit more granular in, in detail than, for example, what you need in the medical lab. So I think, I think in some ways it's very similar to medicine, obviously protecting personal information. In other ways, there's, there's, there's a lot of documentation and um, so it's important. You know, I, I talked to a DA 
early on when I got the company started and he said, uh, <laughs> he told me, it's great that you're solving cases, but I don't care about solving cases. I care about prosecuting cases. So, and that's, that's kind of stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, obviously, I, I care either way. I'd love to solve a case right. uh, regardless, but it's something that stuck with me. You know, there's a, not enough to simply solve a case. You need to do it in a way that is uh, well-documented and in line with what's regulatorily expected so that that case can be prosecuted if it's a criminal case. Um, obviously, these projects that involve, you know, does, you know, some of those could be prosecuted, I guess, if you find out there was a crime, but some of them are just going to be regular human IDs. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think that's kind of my thoughts, having, having sat on the medical side and then also on this side. Both sides are really rewarding, though. It's super exciting to be able to help someone work through a, a medical problem, whether it's identifying a rare disease or, or providing a, a diagnosis that can, um, can make their life better. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, it, also exciting on the forensic side to put a name on somebody that essentially has vanished. I mean, and, and so not everyone that we identify is, is free of criminal behavior. The guy in the cave obviously himself was a criminal, but from one perspective, like this, this person is essentially deleted from, from society. Right. No one knows what happened to him. He vanished as an unidentified body. So there's a certain thrill and kind of, it's like a, a feel good vibe that you get from being able to take someone that's essentially been erased from history and give them a story and reestablish them. So um, I think, I think both are really rewarding endeavors and both have a lot of overlapping similarity and and kind of the seriousness in which you want to handle that information to make sure it's properly compiled and disseminated to others. And so far, have you seen most of enthusiasm coming from prosecutors or do you also see folks who are interested in in the defense side of things and in sort of getting innocent victims off? You know, I imagine if we did DNA testing on, you know, everyone on death row and reevaluated the evidence, you know, the odds are you're going to end up having to turn a quarter to a half of the people lose. How much energy is there for that kind of uh, innocence project? I mean, there, there's, there's obviously, yeah, there's obviously the innocence project and there are countless folks that work just as aggressively as prosecutors work to identify criminals. They work just as hard to, to make sure that the wrong people don't go to jail. So we're, we're at this point now where technology, you know, DNA testing technology can really bring some value here. And I think that, look, if someone should be in jail, then put them in jail. And if they shouldn't be in jail, let them out. And, yep. and if you have a, a technology such as this advanced DNA testing that mm-hmm. allows us to make those those decisions a little easier, or it's a little more clear to figure out what's going on, I think it would be irresponsible not to not to employ that kind of testing. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it's being used on both sides. I, I saw a story the other day of someone that was exonerated based on advanced DNA testing. DNA testing, if used properly, is is unbiased, right? It'll it'll identify where the DNA came from. And, and sometimes it'll be the mm-hmm. person you think it is, and sometimes it's not. I think it's amazing to be able to make sure that the right people go to jail and then and the right folks mm-hmm. that are not supposed to be there don't go to jail. Yeah, and I think everyone agrees. Everyone's excited about that, whether they're on the prosecution side or defense <clears throat> side. Sure. But there's also a process. There's like a roadmap to get there and do it in a way that's, you know, compliant. As, as I said, that would like pass the test in court and, and actually be effective as opposed to just creating more noise and confusion. So... I think everyone wants to do it. Um, the only reason it's not being done every day by everyone is is really just that it has to be rolled out and accepted and you know refined and, and so on. And I'm a patient person. You know, the same thing happened if you remember when NGS kind of penetrated the clinic. You know, pe- people were using other kinds of testing, and as as it became possible to fire up a MySeq and start doing these panels, you know, there was a lot of it was very slow in the rollout and a lot of validation. A lot of great work done, if you remember, at NIST with Genome in a Bottle and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff to kind of yep. build the benchmarking platform to know, to basically performance test and know that what you're doing is what you think you're doing. And I think that'll roll out as well 
just like it did in medicine for forensics. And next thing you know it, just like in medicine, there'll be more sequencers cropping up and people will be following a, a vetted and performance tested approach to determine where, where remains came from. So yeah. in the meantime, we've tried to lead that discussion as we did for Genome in a Bottle. We're trying to lead that discussion and support the lab. And uh, yeah. we have the only forensics lab right now, the only private forensics lab that actually, you know, features ANOVASeq and as we discussed last time, yeah. whole genome sequencing. It's a big risk and a big expense, but we did it because we want to drive, we want to push forward and drive ahead that discussion around standards and regulatory process. We'd like to see this kind of testing secure forensic accreditation. Right now, nobody on earth has forensic accreditation for this kind of testing. All the work gets confirmed using a traditional CODIS test or some other right. kind of, you know, usually STR-based method to validate and orthogonally confirm anything we discover. Fantastic. Um, one last question, then, and I'll let you get back to solving crimes. What is the oldest uh, sample you guys have have processed and solved? Is it is it the Buffalo Cave torso? Yeah, the is it actually interesting. This Buffalo torso, I believe it's uh, it's not the oldest case solved using this kind of autosomal testing. There's a there's a, there's a case that was older, but I think it's the oldest one that was solved for law enforcement. I think this is actually the oldest law enforcement case solved by anyone using autosomal testing. But to answer your question, we, we are doing projects, we are in process with projects right now that are actually older than that, but they're, they're not solved. And so, so I'd say if you're asking solved, yeah, this is the oldest project that we've solved. And I believe for law enforcement, it's the oldest project anyone solved, but we're working on some other projects right now that are even older. Once, once you unlock this technology, there's a multitude of mysteries that stretch back, you know, centuries. And so there's, there's a lot that can be done. And so, um, so I'm excited. I hope next time we chat, I'll have a, a story of an even older case. Every time we talk, I'll try to come up with an older and older case. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, David, this is, this is really exciting. I mean, just from the first time we, we talked and gave, gave our listeners a, a glimpse inside what Otham is working on, it seems you guys have come many, many miles. And uh, congrats on the, the successes, on the milestones, and I look forward to hearing about the next set. Okay, well, thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure.